already made good on turning to Revelation 22. You might do that now. When we came to the end of the book of Genesis, we had cake in the foyer. When my wife learned that today we come to the end of Revelation, she asked, so where's the cake? (laughs) I don't have cake today, but I do have an invitation to our Thanksgiving meal after church next Sunday, and I know there will be dessert there. There always is. I'm reminded of a lady that met with her pastor because she knew that her time was coming near on earth and she planned her funeral arrangements with her pastor and at the end uh, she told her pastor to make sure and tell all the pastor buyers this story. She said, um, tell them to keep their fork because the best is yet to come. She said, make sure and put a fork in my right hand in my casket. When they pass by, tell them if they know the Lord Jesus Christ, they can keep their fork because the best is yet to come like deep dish apple pie or velvety chocolate cake. And I've told that story a lot at funerals because for those who die in Christ is not to die, right? Those who die in Christ is to be with Christ. Those who live for Christ to die is gain. And so Revelation 22, in a real sense, is an invitation. It's an invitation to what's to come. It's an invitation to dinner, to the wedding feast of a lamb. It's an invitation to join the Lamb upon his return at this feast. But you must enter to him by faith. This text is a warning to believers to stay the course. And it's also an invitation to unbelievers to believe, to receive, to move from outside to inside the camp of Christianity. So Revelation 22 is an invitation. It's an invitation to worship. As one commentator said, to understand our corporate worship, what we're doing here as we we see the word through the ordinances on certain Sundays, as we sing the word every Sunday and pray the word and read the word and preach the word, as we come together to understand our corporate worship, we need to look to the place where worship is done most perfectly. And where is that? Heaven. Heaven is where worship is done most perfectly. And that is revealed in what book of the Bible but the book that we're in, the book of Revelation. The Lamb breaks the seals and inaugurates the new covenant. Elders bow in prayer. Silence is a feature. Trumpets and harps are used. Corporate prayers of martyrs are heard and responded to by God in judgment for salvation. Judgment, as well as the salvation of God's people, is celebrated in heaven. As another said, praise is the root to God's presence. Praise is the root to God's presence. Perhaps you've never thought of it that way before. What is the root to God's presence? Praise. God is enthroned on the praises of his people, Revelation describes. Think of the seraphim, the elders, the angels, and the saints in heaven that are all engaged in worshiping Christ. We have a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews says, watching us. Our praise and thanksgiving join with theirs and ushers us directly into God's presence. So as imperfect worshipers, we look to the perfect to know how to make our union 
more perfect. But this text is an invitation to worship. It's what believers do. Worship sanctifies. It's God's means of grace for us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. So this text is an invitation to worship. And it's an invitation to worship with our words, with our works, as well as with our wonder. And so we're going to see today in this text three parts. Worshiping with our words in verses 6 through 10, with our works in verses 11 through 15, and then finally with our wonder in verses 16 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 22. If you're new to biblical things, this is an easy one to find. It's the very last page of the Bible. And here's what it says. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit of the brides, the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And depending on the Byzantine of a Texas Receptus, that very last stanza may read slightly differently. I assure you it is not a reason to doubt the veracity of the scriptures you hold. So let's take the first verses now from the point of the invitation to worship with our words, verses 6 through 10, the invitation to worship through our words. Let me just reread those verses so that we can focus in on those in this first point. It says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, and that is John the Apostle, we believe now is an old man writing this, 
am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, he saw them from the prison island of Patmos. He saw them in a vision. He wrote them down to encourage the saints through times of perseverance and darkness. He said, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Remember, this is the second time in the book this has happened. And he's corrected very quickly by the angel who knows that John's just kind of spun up and excited. And he says, you can't worship me. I'm like you. I mean, I'm a fellow servant with you. You don't worship angels. By the way, don't ever worship angels. Worship God, it says here. And by the way, I'm a fellow servant with you and with all of those who had the spirit of prophecy to write the words of Scripture. And I'm with all those who keep the words of this book. So you don't have to have written Scripture to be important to God and to worship God. We benefit from the Scripture, even if we aren't one of the 40 or so people that wrote down Scripture. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And of course, the prophecy of this book, we cannot seal up. It is our mission as Christians not to seal up the words of the prophecy. We'll talk about that. And simply to say that there were supernatural and amazing, miraculous things that God's perfectly capable of any time that surrounded the giving of the Scriptures, these 66 books of the Bible. If you track back to the prophets that wrote the Scripture, you'll find there were truly verifiably amazing things that happened that defy the order of things like the sun standing still and the resurrection of the dead. And so God is very much on the throne. And when the time comes for supernatural and miraculous blessings to be overt and permanently seen, God will do so and make all things right. But within this first point, that which we are to fixate on is not the demand for signs of miraculous things as individuals. It is instead... The prayer to understand the words that have been given rightly and to live out those words so rightly that the words that we speak are conformed to and expressive of these words. There's uh, sayings of believers throughout the ages that were really biblically inclined. And what's said of them is... It's just kind of a little way of describing it. When you knew somebody that some old head that really knew their Bible, if you, if you uh, pricked their skin, they would bleed Bible. That it was so in them, it would come out. You know? And uh, that, that's what we, uh, we think of as very unusual. But, you know, my prayer and thought and hope for all of us is that we would understand that that's a worthy desire for every single Christian to bleed Bible one day to just know this book, to familiarize ourselves with this book. That's part of worship. And many of us here are coming to understand that. And as you are, I believe that you will find blessing from the Lord despite what kind of aptitude that you have or think that you don't have or how age hurts memory. The aspiration to bleed the words of this book when pricked is worthwhile. It's a good aspiration. It's a noble thing, I believe. It says here these things must soon take place. Surely we've always thought that they would soon take place. Um, Revelation 22.6 echoes Daniel 2.45, and it does so because Daniel 2.45 says something to the effect of the great God made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what must come to pass after these things. And then Revelation 22.6 says the Lord God sent to show his servants what must soon take place or what must come to pass quickly. So the fact that the time is near may need a little bit of explanation here. Consider a metaphor I've used before that I'm borrowing from Greg Beal, because these are future imminent events, both. 
It's kind of like Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy when you read the prophets. They're future and imminent events, both. And the metaphor that we've used a few times here is from World War II, in the same way that the Germans defending France on D-Day could have said the Allies are near, though the Allied forces had only just begun to land on German-occupied territory. And the conclusion reached by the ground clause of chapter 1, verse 3 in Revelation applies to chapter 22 here. The prophecies sealed up by Daniel have begun to be fulfilled, continue to be fulfilled in the present, and will also be consummated in the future. And so if that's kind of hard to stay with, perhaps simply just understand that the time is near because there are imminent aspects to these events as well as future aspects to these events. And the fancy term for that is inaugurated eschatology or inaugurated last things, things that have begun to happen but haven't fully happened yet. And that tension is a good way to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. We see crossover between the book of Daniel and Revelation 22. And I just want you to know as a side note that I intend next to preach the book of Daniel. And if you like those little scripture journals to take notes in, Nicole has secured a stack of them at the bookstall at cost. And so you can grab one on your way out if you would like to, if that helps you, if that serves you well. If you like those little scripture journals by book, Daniel is probably next. But Daniel is in view not only in chapter 2 here, but also in chapter 12. And in between, when we're reading Revelation 22, there are allusions, some of which I will not even have time to mention. But that's just a word within this first point about it's happening soon. I won't redress that again after this because it's going to be mentioned again. Let's get into the word specifically. Think about the reliability of God's word and how mostly important that is to God. It's again and again expressed in Revelation. His word is trustworthy. And this is why we worship God, because he is ultimately reliable. He is trustworthy, and so therefore his words are trustworthy. You don't worship go-betweens. You worship the high priest that you go directly to. That's the amazingness of our understanding of the gospel as articulated in the book of Hebrews. Consider the Psalter in chapter 93, verse 5, where it says, Your decrees are trustworthy. Trustworthy decrees. And then it says, holiness befits your house in Psalm 93. Forevermore, holiness befits your house. It reminds me of the issue of trust, the trust issue. I think we all, to some extent, have trust issues. It's probably why Revelation repeats the refrain that this worthy is not only true, this word is not only true, but it's also trustworthy. Because we do have issues with trust, and there's reasons we have issues with trust. Trust has been violated by humanity over and over and over again. For some of you, it is a warm violation of trust. And so we tend to impose, we tend to transfer that lack of trust in humanity on God. But I want you to know that God is utterly trustworthy. His word, therefore, is utterly trustworthy. I remember the very small country church of my youngest years, and my six foot four, I didn't get his height, but my six foot four Uncle Earl Neely on my mom's side would lead singing with that nasally yet sincere voice. And as he led singing, I remember the heart behind it. And I particularly remember a song that he would sing I'm learning to lean, I'm learning to lean, I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Learning to lean on Jesus. That's a statement of trust, isn't it? I'm learning to lean on Jesus. I'm getting there. He is trustworthy. 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Psalter also says in chapter 29, verse 2, in a psalm of David himself, which is spoken of in this chapter, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Give Him the glory. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. I want you to see how worship and holiness is intertwined in Scripture. Because that's important. God is holy, and so He is to be worshipped. We as worshipers are being made holy. We're being made holy through the ascription of of glory to the God that is our God, and we give glory to His name, and so sanctification happens through the times of our worship, and as our lives are worshiped, worshiping rather than being conformed to the patterns of this world. So back in Revelation 22, we see in verse 6, these words are trustworthy, these words are true. And the Lord, the God, the Spirit of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what's going to take place soon. And then verse 7, Behold, I'm coming soon, again, says, and you have the word blessed. It's the Greek word makarios. And so theologians say there are seven makarisms based on that word in the, in the book of Revelation. And you say, why does that matter? Well, it matters because the word blessed is used seven times in the book of Revelation to describe a blessing on God's people. I would really like to share those seven blessings with you. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud, hears, and keeps the words of this prophecy. In chapter 14, verse 13, Blessed are the dead who die in Christ. In chapter 16, verse 15, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garment on. Garments on, stays awake through this life. In chapter 19, verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as if to crescendo with these blessings, these macarisms toward the end of the book, we have the last three in chapters 20 and then 22. It says in chapter 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Talking about the millennial reign of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then again in chapter 22, verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. So there are seven blessings in Revelation. And if you've been an astute reader of this book so far, you will note that seven is not an accidental numbering. You might think back to King David. Do you remember in the ordering of birth, what birth order he was amongst the brothers of the sons of Jesse, he was not the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, but Second Chronicles two, First Chronicles two tells us he was the seventh born son and the little son, right? Overlooked. Blessed are the word keepers. In Revelation seven is not by accident; it's a number of completion. It's reminiscent of a full week rather than a partial week, a six-day week, which six would be the number of man, and seven would be a number of completion, indicative of God's perfect work. We tend to never find rest until we rest in Him, as one said. The seventh macarism comes in verse 14, the sixth one in verse 7 of Revelation 22. There are not only seven days in a week and seven blessings in Revelation, and David is a seventh-born son of Jesse, but speaking here in Revelation, we find that there are seven churches that are referenced, seven churches that are referenced with specific messages to each If you go back and read Revelation 2 and 3, you will find warnings that the churches were to heed, that they might conquer and be sustained in the faith. They were to hear warnings and encouragements to persevere. 
Some of the churches had little strength. Some of them were given to false teaching and immorality. One of the churches had a kind of coldness, and they needed to return to the love that they had at first. One of the churches had a dangerous lethargy towards spiritual things. They compromised with the world. So these were addressed as warnings, though, still. The warnings were meant to sustain the believers in the invisible church against the unsaved that crept into the visible church. Think of Jezebel. The ones that had a form of godliness but denied the power of the core of the gospel. Revelation was written to seven churches to do that. And those churches are mentioned in our text today in the last chapter of this blessed book. There are also, we think, seven cycles of judgment in Revelation for the unbelievers that will receive the plagues described in this book. We see cycle one with the seven seals, no less, in verses four through eight. Cycle two with seven trumpets, no less. Cycle three with symbolic figures and the harvest. Cycle four with seven bowls, no less. Cycle five with the judgment on Babylon. Cycle six with the white horse judgment. And cycle seven with the white throne judgment. As many commentators have popularized, but particularly Vern Poitras puts very aptly, and I would recommend his free online ebook commentary on Revelation if you want to make a deeper study of Revelation. It's titled The Returning King, and it's so helpful. But there's seven cycles with this culminating act of the New Jerusalem coming in chapters 21 and 22 as described, and here we are in these final exhortations of this book. To narrow into Revelation 22 and to consider the reliability of these words and the blessings that are given to God's people as described in these words, we see the Lord Jesus himself speaking in the first person in Revelation 22, 6 through 21. You may have noticed your Bible if it has red letters when it considers Jesus speaking in the first person, such as in the Gospels. You may have noticed a switch to a red letter text in the last page of the Bible. You'll notice four different utterances of Jesus within our verses today, verse 7, verse 12, verse 16, and verse 20. And that's one of the places where it's helpful to have a print Bible so that you can note and mark and consider. If you don't have red letters, you might just write 7, 12, 16, and 20, because that's the first person where Jesus speaks in the first person. But he's, all of the book is Jesus's. And consider that this is the Lord's word given to the apostle John through the mediating work of an angel, that we might understand these things. And keep in mind, again, that John is old, decrepit, seeming to have nothing to offer to the church anymore, and he's, he's in prison. And here he is doing his best work, perhaps last. And what a word that is to us as we age. When we think we can do nothing but pray, we should think, I get to pray. When we think we can do nothing but remember the words of Scripture and the better of, our, of the stories of Scripture, we should remember. We get to remember the words of Scripture until we don't need to remember anymore. This is a sustaining word. It's a powerful word. And it's a word that permeates our worship. Privately, for sure, in our families, to be true, but corporately when we gather together. Worship God, our text says. But not like that. Don't worship like that. Don't worship the angel. Don't get... Con- don't worship in ways that God hasn't prescribed. So there's an implied question, does God care how we worship him? And the answer to that question, I believe, is a resounding yes. So next Saturday, when we have our men's breakfast, we're going to be studying a little blue book titled Corporate Worship. I'm holding it in my hand here. It's a very small book. If you're a man that 
doesn't like to read much, that's pretty quick. It's a small book. It's a helpful and apt book telling us about how God wants to be worshipped, what we should do in our worship services, and how that might help inform your private worship and your family worship. So you don't have to have read this little blue book to come Saturday, although it's encouraged, but you can find this title online. It's, a, it's accessible, it's an ebook. it's readable, it's helpful. You don't have to wait on a hard copy to come. Uh, but we need more men to understand corporate worship. Trust me on this if you don't have a vision for it yet. We need more men to understand corporate worship. It is a desperate need of our hour, and that's why we're prioritizing this next Saturday to help discover afresh how God wants to be worshipped. But not like that, this text says. And there's more ways that applies than just to the worship of an angel. God does care how he is worshipped. And we are to study up from the reliable words, the trustworthy words, how God wants to be worshipped and worship him in the ways that he asks to be worshipped. And I believe blessings come from that. Blessings come from that. There are seven of them mentioned in Revelation. God's word is reliable. And it's a perennial issue that these words might be sealed up, that mouths might be muzzled, that people might not speak. The enemy wants our words about the word to be effectively sealed. But the way that I read this book, we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And our primary job description as Christians, regardless of what our vocation is in this world, regardless of how we earn our bread and how we spend our time, whether in school, working years, retirement, whatever the case may be, working in retirement, that's what most people do these days. You take this thing here, and you know this thing, and the problem is that the enemy wants it sealed up effectively or functionally. And when we look at this, or literally rather, or functionally, I meant to say, and when we look at this, what we need to do is not only have it permeating our bloodstream and our veins, but we need to speak words aptly and carefully to people as we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. So allow not this, the words of this prophecy to be sealed up because there is an immediacy to the need. The time is near for every generation. You know, we get hung up asking whether or not we can validate that the time is near because has this cycle of that bowl happened yet and da-da-da-da-da. What about the immediacy of the shortness of your life? To fulfill your missionary task of taking the gospel and speaking gospel words to people. What about the, if you're an unbeliever here today, what about the immediacy of the shortness of your life in relation to how you'll spend eternity? Do you understand there's no time to be cavalier with the words of Scripture? Your cleverness will not usher you through the gate into the city. The coyness of your mind, the ability to put together a string of sentences, your aptitude, whether quicker in the processor or slower than mine, makes no difference. You will enter through that gate through Jesus Christ alone. There's no other way. The words of Scripture, they present to you an urgency. Time is near. Cling to Christ while there's time. And coming to Him, there's no magical batch of words. Just yield your spirit to Him today. I want to be a worshiper of you. I believe this. My heart is turned. It doesn't make rational sense, but it makes heart sense. Repent of your sin and trust him. He will save you to the uttermost, and he'll ink your name in the book of life. Follow the Lord. There's an urgency for you, unbeliever. There's an urgency for you, believer. The time is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. So be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers, Peter says. And speak the words 
of this prophecy. Number two, we have an invitation to worship not only with our words, but also with our works, with our deeds, with how we live our lives, with what we do. Reconsider verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 with me. Let the evildoer still do evil. It's almost written as kind of a, like an accepted foregone conclusion. Not a prescription that we should do evil. It's like this is what's happening. I'll speak to that in a moment. The evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy be, still be filthy. And conversely, with the contrast, let the righteous still do right. And let the holy still be holy. You have four imperatives in verse 11. Evil, filthy, do, and holy. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed, there's that seventh blessing, are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Verse 15, outside of the dogs. This was a, a Jewish way of speaking of those that were outside of the camp. Outside are the sorcerers, the sexual immoral, murderers and idolaters. It's interesting, you know, we could probably get with those former things, but how about the respectable sin of having a little lie tongue, lying tongue, speaking falsehoods? It's an, it's an encompassing list. It's an encompassing list for a reason, I believe. It's the reason we have prayers of confession in the church. There are three vice lists in Revelation. This is the third of the three. It's important for our ongoing need to confess our sins and to be assured that if we confess our sins, that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But it is a need. It's a need in corporate worship every week. And Brother Jacob led us beautifully just a few moments ago in a prayer of confession. He was to the point. He prayed the text. And we confessed our sins together. And, oh, we needed to confess our sins. We do not outgrow in this life our need to repent and be reassured that God is the one that does the work and that we do not. And that our works are a result of a root of salvation that could only have ever come from him. Verse 11 exhorts us to persevere in doing what is right under persecution and oppression, discouragement. Saints are tempted to lose heart and compromise. As one commentator said, the call to persevere in faith is always an apt call. It's always an apt call. Good works are not the basis for eternal life. No. It's not as if we earned life through our own efforts. No. But good works are external demonstrations of the genuineness of our faith and of the justice of God's judgment. The separation, the contrast, the separation between the righteous and the wicked in verses 14 and 15 distinguishes people with two antithetical kinds of behavior, with two antithetical kinds of character. And that's why with this kind of, of resolve, the writer can say, let the evildoer still do evil and the righteous still do right. Patterns of behavior, whether they're controlled by unbelief or by faith, are on display here and summarized. And they will eventually be irreversible. I told you earlier that there are allusions to the book of Daniel. Daniel 12.10 is alluded to right here. In fact, A.T. Robertson said the language here is ironical to Daniel chapter 12, verse 10. These estates of evil and good are now fixed forever. There is no word here about a second chance hereafter. And so because of that fixedness, again, time is our opportunity. We must redeem the time. 
the fixedness of eternity. There's an urgency about the missionary task because of the permanency of the eternal state that's being leaned into and described here. But there's also kind of a word here about our current state in this life. And, and here's how I think that it, that it comes about. Imagine the point in life where the Lord isn't dealing with you. And here's what I think is operative in that question. Let me ask it differently. Is the Lord dealing with you? Like when you commit one of these vice-listed sins, when you're tempted to it, when you commit it, do you have a conscience about it? Have you professed Christ? Does it hurt you to know that you've hurt the heart of Christ? I ask you again, is, is God dealing with you? Now, God dealing with you does not mean that you've received the gospel. But God dealing with you as a Christian likely does. If you've received the gospel for conversion, if you've received him, you've, you've received the right to become children of God, John 1 says. And as children of God, God continues to deal with you. The, the indwelling spirit of God deals with you. Some of you mistake the dealing of God with you as evidence that you're not saved. And you never really get off the starting block of sanctification. You relay the foundation, as Hebrews says, again and again and again of salvation. The reality is, if you are troubled by your sins as a Christian, this is a good thing. It is a good thing. These are signs of life. But we need to move you out of the operating room and into the recovery area and start seeing you grow in Christ. If you have a besetting sin listed in this list, something that really plagues you, you should no longer go it alone. Don't coddle that sin. Express it, repent of it, and get some accountability in the body of Christ and know the joy of the blessings, of the assurance of growth in Christ, of growing up in every way Christ, of no longer having your worship inhibited by this great big blinder in your life toward your assurance of salvation that is a besetting sin that you're coddling. I am of firmly convinced that there is no, no, nothing worse than if, the, if God were to not deal with me. If you're a person in this room that senses God dealing with you and it hurts you when, you when you mess up, let that simultaneously not only motivate you to worship Him with better works, but also to thank Him that you are His, to offer gratitude for a salvation that's been secured on your behalf. God dealing with you is a wonderful assurance of salvation for the Christian. It's a wonderful assurance of salvation for the Christian. These blessings apply to you. These blessings apply to you. Now, the plagues do apply to the unbelievers. They're real. And the warnings are to keep us as believers in the faith, but the warnings are to solidify the justness of God's judgment for eternity against those who reject Him and His way of salvation. Perhaps some convincing of your need for Christ and your clinging to Christ could be offered through verse 13. Description 
of the permanency of the eternal state and of the justness of God's judgment aforementioned. And then we have a description of Christ himself, which is hearkening back to the first parts of Revelation. Christ is described as the Alpha and the Omega. If you were to read the Greek alphabet, you would find Alpha as the first letter and Omega as the last. There's a ministry that's actually titled Alpha and Omega Ministries because it's a man that, that depends on the Greek Testament for his ministry, and so that's what it's called. Christ is the, the first letter of the language alphabet and the last language, regardless of what your mother tongue is. Greek, in this case, the New Testament was written in Greek predominantly. Alpha and Omega is like saying the A and the Z of the English alphabet meaning nothing came before and nothing comes after, speaks to the eternality of Jesus Christ. You won't conquer this king, you'll only worship him. There is no one big enough, strong enough, quick enough, smart enough, well-read enough, endowed enough. There's no way. You never control this king, you only worship him. He is the first and the last, that verse says. The first and the last. It also says in verse 13 at the end he's the beginning and the end he's the beginning and the end the beginning of all that humanity knows and the end of all that humanity knows it's it's like uh, restating a thing for emphasis is what's going on here repetition is how we learn so it's like the alphabet and a roll call first man up last man standing it's like a chronology spanning from the beginning to the end and it's a description of this, this God-man, Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully human and will exist and reign forever and has existed in eternity past. What a theme for our worship. It says in verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And again it restates, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What are we to do with this? Well, an integral aspect of our assurance of salvation is our worship. And an integral aspect of our worship is longing for the second coming of Christ. Worship depends on knowing who God is, and God has made himself known as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he has also made himself known, if we may borrow from verse 16 below, he's made himself known as the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. A bright morning star is, is like the star of a new day dawning in the ancient world. Christ is the beginning of our newness in eternity. Not only our new life, but eternal life. He's the bright morning star. He's also the root and descendant of David. You may remember we said earlier, David is the seventh born son of Jesse. Nothing is ancillary in Scripture. Everything matters. The completeness of the gospel is on display in the completeness of revelation. The completeness of the seven cycles of judgment. The completeness of the churches who conquer in Christ. And the completeness of the blessings of salvation for all who will receive. Revelation is a complete book even if it is a pictorial book imaging again and again through apocalyptic literature what God is doing in the kingdom come. 
Revelation 7 puts us on this trail. In Revelation 7, 14, it explains that these robe-washed ones, these with white robes on, say and are, I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white, white in the blood of the Lamb. This is during the interlude of chapter 7 between the 6th and the 7th seal. And so these robed, robed, washed ones are coupled with the saints of old from the tribes of Israel into one chapter in chapter 7. And these, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now this is Revelation 7, and it's in view in our text today. These are not a select few that got it just right and endured specific persecution. No, this is described as an innumerable multitude from every people type declaring the virtues of the Lamb. These robe-washed ones are all understanding the property of salvation that belongs to God alone and is God's alone to give on His terms alone. These robes are white, signifying purity, in the robe-washed ones, but it's signifying purity having been washed in blood that usually doesn't come out. Blood makes us pure. Whose blood makes us pure? Christ's blood makes us pure. That's the, the imagery on display here with these that have their robes washed, their garments washed. We are the people of God, and we are blessed because of the blood of Christ. We're not earning this salvation. It is His blood that is purifying our garments. And we understand that even as we seek to work for Christ and see those works as opportunities to reflect Christ rightly and to share Christ with the world and not to do things that would hurt his heart and not to do things that would malign his witness. So our works, while not being from us in root, are important, as we've talked about in previous sermons, and they really, really do matter. And so may, may we take this text and heed the warnings and allow it to be means to grow us up in Christ. I don't really think these words are primarily for unbelievers. And so well, why would you say that, Matt? Well, look at verse 17 where it says that the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Well, well who is the bride in the New Testament? The bride in the New Testament is the church. And this is to the churches. Look at verse 16. It says, I testify to you about these things for the churches. And so these warnings are there specifically, I think, to keep us in the faith, to move us alone, along so that we're not alone, which is why I think that we must confess our sins privately and corporately together when we worship God. It's part of Him making us into who we are. So as Greg Beale says, he says that verses 18 and 19 are directed consequently not primarily to those who are outside of a church, but to all in the church community as warnings of Deuteronomy are addressed to all Israelites. Those who do not heed the warnings profess to be, heed the warnings, profess to be Christian, but their allegiance to the other gods betrays their confession. And as a result, the inheritance they lay claim to by their apparent testimony will be withheld because they deny by their actions the faith that they profess." So I think that verses 18 and 19 is to those that outwardly profess to be Christians but never have true faith. And I've already explained to you 
that true faith produces struggle with your sin. And so there's a lot of assurance for most everybody in this room that struggles with faith because struggling with your faith and fighting sin is an evidence of salvation. But the Bible tells us clearly there are Jezebels. There are folks that are in the visible church that do not truly believe. And there are also folks in the visible church that seek to wreak havoc in the church by virtue of being a part of the visible church. We often talk about the need for church membership to know who's in the local church. And a lot of times people will talk about the church universal as this grand thing, but the church local is not so important. I actually think the logic works in reverse for this text today. Because often we talk about, you think about the church local as this great assurance that I'm in the church universal, and that should be the case. But your apparent presence in the visible church local is not an assurance that you're in the church universal if you don't know Christ. You must receive Christ. And in knowing Christ, then the validity of your testimony, your profession, is not only heard here, it's heard there. Your voice is heard in heaven. Trust Christ. Have assurance of salvation. Watch works follow. Albeit slow and sputtering, watch those works follow in your lives. These plagues won't apply to you. Blessings will apply to you. Dane Ortland wrote it like this. He said, We aren't motivated to holiness by just staring at our sin. At most, sin convicts like the law does. At most, sin serves to warn believers where the right track is to get back on. Sin cannot alone provoke love. Only a Savior can. Works do not produce faith. Faith is a gift. Faith always produces works, though. Holiness that is necessary to see the Lord. You cannot want the Lord without wanting holiness any more than you can want a child without a personality or want a relationship without a conversation or want a meal without groceries. God is holy. It is what He is. And so our worship knows that holiness befits the Lord's house and the Lord's people. We enter through the gate of the Lord Jesus Christ and enter we have and enter we shall. So we are a people pursuing holiness And we are pointing people toward that holiness, not by simply pointing them to their sin, but more so pointing them to the Savior. And I think that is extremely important as you're coming to understand the last page of the Bible. Just look at how many times Jesus speaks and look at how the attributes of Christ are on full display, not only in chapter 1 of Revelation and not only throughout Revelation, but in this last chapter. It isn't about your ability to attain salvation. Revelation 22 is a display of the grandeur of Christ. I'll tell you how much that did not matter to me until it became everything to me. It just didn't matter to me. It was always about me figuring out how to get myself through the pearly gates. And if that's your estimation of the second point in this sermon, worshiping with your works, you've missed the root of those works. This is about Christ. Let's see it. Look at at chapter 22, verse 6. This is about the Lord, who is the spirit of the prophets, who gives us these words that are trustworthy and true. Right? Look at chapter 22, verse 
13. This is about the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is about Christ. Look at verse 16. This is about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the root and the descendant of David. As one said, this provides a, an understanding of his deity and his humanity. He's both the source of David and a descendant of David. So Christ, who Christ is, Christology, 100% God, 100% man. That's not just stuffy doctrine. That's scriptural. This is about knowing Jesus and the spirit that he gives us upon his death. He promised the spirit to the churches. Jacob read this text earlier. It hadn't yet come, and the spirit came in earnest after Jesus ascended into heaven. And he leaves us as the church with the spirit. And so the spirit working in us to produce holiness, to produce the fruit of the spirit. And the bride, we as the church, we both have a common saying. We have this Erechimai saying where we say, come. And then that imperative is over and over in these last verses. Come, come, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so as Jesus comes into view for you, your sin stops being your motivation for holiness, and He becomes your motivation for how you live your life. And the words become more important in your worship, in your, in your life. Your works become more important. And really what it gives way to is this third point, this most important point, is the wonder. The wonder. Your salvation stops being mechanical. It's, it stops being about just lining everything up just right so I don't feel guilty. That's not the relationship Christ has secured for you. He is so in love with you. He's asking you to be intimate with Him in a way that, that no intimacy in this life can do anything but in His most pure form point toward. For in heaven will neither be married or given in marriage. We are married to Christ, and our union with Christ will be on fullest display at the marriage feast of the Lamb and in the sweet by and by forevermore. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. If you want to have this wonder renewed and you look to these verses about who Jesus is, look to Christ, don't look to yourself. Look to Him. Look at what He has done for you. Look at the end of verse 17. This is an invitation to worship with wonder. Verse 17 says, And let the one who is thirsty, who has need of a spiritual drink, come and take the water of life without price. That's been mentioned before in Revelation. At no cost to you. That doesn't mean that spiritual water, living water, comes to you with nobody at price. It's a big price. In Romans and Corinthians it says that you were bought at a price. The price was Jesus' blood that makes your garments white because of red blood. The price is Jesus. He died for you. Enter through that narrow gate and stay with that. He died for you. Jesus is the secure, the price payer, the water giver, the quencher, of your thirst in salvation, in all aspects of your sanctification and growth in Christ, and forevermore in glorified glorification when you have that glorified body forever in heaven, when we have the new heavens and the new earth. So it's an invitation to worship with wonder. And I think wonder gets into our prayers too. Consider that in this third and final point. Look, look at it again. 
our wonder. The Spirit, verse 17, talking about Jesus. The Spirit and the bride both say, come. The one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take this water of life without price. Verse 18, and I warn everyone who hears the words of his prophecy, this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. These are warnings to keep us in faith, not to remove us from faith. It says in, in verse 18, and if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. In other words, do not take away from it. This cannot be understood to contravene verses like Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, where you who have these white robes on, Jesus will never, no, never blot your name out of the book of life. We talked about that in earlier sermons. Ours is to conquer sin, and ours is a promise from Jesus that we will. And ours is to have our names confessed before the Father and our fellow servants, the angels, in heaven, and you won't be blotted out. The question is not in mind in Revelation twenty-two nineteen. The question being addressed in Revelation twenty-two nineteen is whether you're a part of the visible church. It's a Hebrew 6 kind of question. If you are a part of the visible church but not the universal church, something is wrong. It's the opposite question of what we normally ask. You could fool your way into being here, but is it in there that you're in there? We want as much alignment with the universal church and the visible church as we can have, but it is not foolproof. And so this is actually a warning to keep us in faith, but it also is a gospel reception opportunity for the clever person that doesn't believe this stuff that's found themselves on the church roll. Hebrews 6 is about this, to be sure. It's about this to be sure. John Snyder wrote about this or spoke about this not too long ago. He said, commenting on Hebrews 6, which dovetails very closely with Revelation 22 at the very, very end. He said, of short-lived changes in people's lives, the book of Hebrews is another good help. It's an opportunity. Shallow changes may occur, but no changes in my heart's desire occurs that would be commensurate with the new birth. For example... A person seems to be doing really well for a while, but in a year you won't catch them at church. Hebrews, in a terrifying way, gives us a number of warnings for those people who have gone very far in religion, but turned back at some point. And the argument in Hebrews is that in turning back, you've demonstrated really that you never were his and that there is no hope for you because in turning away from Christ, there isn't another option for life. You turned away from the one hope. So really, in a very frightening way, these passages in the Bible, such as are in Hebrews, show us that you can be a part of the visible church, but not a part of the universal church. It, it, there's very real differences from being affected by religious truth and being born from above with a deep and lasting change that the Spirit works in us. Because these changes are deep and lasting that the Spirit works in us. That's why the saints persevere to the end. That's why the Spirit in the bride, the church, say the same things about hastening the day of the Lord, because this world is messed up for us, and our longing is for Him. We want to be with Him. This is the purpose of the Spirit in our lives, and we move from troubled in conscience to worshiper whenever we understand that He did it for us. I toyed today with this sermon as to whether or not even to address the people that might be a part of the visible church, but not the universal church. And the reason I struggle with it is because I know a few of you, maybe several of you, will start imposing that on yourself. Like, I'm, well, I'm troubled in my conscience, so maybe I'm not really a part of the visible church. It's most likely not you. If you are soft, it's not you. 
The reason I felt compelled to preach that aspect of this text is I think the text drives me to give one more chance to you stubborn, hard-hearted people that consider yourself heaven-bound because you have some social affiliation with this church role. That does not get you home. And you will face God's white-hot wrath if Jesus says to you, depart from me, I never knew you. And you'll have no just cause to complain. And it's forever. This message is for you no matter how much you think you've been affiliated around the church for 50 years. If you haven't trusted Christ, when you meet him, he will say, I don't know you. Because nobody gets to the gate except through Christ alone. And that is the rub of Revelation twenty-two nineteen, And it has to be preached. So if that applies to you, don't whitewash it with someone else's conscience. Receive it and receive the gospel and come in and have all these assurances. Have all these assurances. They're all for the believer. Then you can say with us, come Lord Jesus, come. I'm reminded of the hymn, you know it, don't you just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Well, what is it we really need to be talking about? His coming. His coming. Come, Lord Jesus, come. As God the Spirit and God the Church, as God the Spirit and God's Church, the bride agree in desiring the Lord to return to come, we find our worship more fulfilling. We find sanctification happening in our midst, and we rediscover the wonder of His grace. Look at the promises of verse 20 and 21. He who testified of these things say, I'm coming soon. And we have this corporateness together when we say amen to our prayers and we pray that we might hasten the day of the Lord's return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We experience a fresh and a new verse 21, the very last verse in the very last chapter of the very last book in the Bible. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Grace. Grace, God's grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all of his people. This is the assurance. This is the ground of our prayers that end in Jesus' name. Amen. We are reminded of the very first verses of this book when we talk about grace. Think of Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, when John said to the not one, two, three, four, five, six, but seven churches that are in Asia and really all the churches everywhere in all time. What did he say to the church? Grace. Grace to you. The name of a popular ministry, no doubt. Grace to you. And peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves you. He loves us. And he's freed you from your sins by his blood. And he's made a kingdom. He's made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And can you say with me? Amen. Let's bow our heads together and pray. God, your grace has provided for our corporate worship, for all of our worship. And our worship offers us this opportunity with this little bit of time we have to return words, works, and wonder to you. 
Lord, may this message not jeer, but may it help believers to persevere. May you be pleased to use this message, Lord, to call the sinner to repent and to assure the repentant sinner of your righteousness on their behalf. We pray the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, even as we ask you to come, Lord Jesus, to come. I pray for the sick in our church that can't work because of sickness. Please heal them. We pray for those that have recently lost loved ones. Those that have lost loved ones of seemingly natural progression, we pray for. And for those that have had loved ones quickly taken from them, we pray. We pray, Lord, this community and the communities around this community would be places where your gospel is clearly shared, freely received as it's been freely given. We pray that the gospel would go forward to other communities not only in other parts of this country, but in all the countries and regions of the world. We pray for the kidnapped in Haiti. We pray for the confused in China and the hungry in Ethiopia. We pray for the churches that are being started in other countries of the world. We pray for our missions and for every gospel-preaching church to be blessed. We pray for our members as they prepare to gather this afternoon to consider what you might have for us, if you will, in the next year. And we pray for those prospective members that you're sending our way that are hungry for your grace by your word. We pray we would be faithful to share it to them, one to another. In Jesus' precious name, amen.